Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Mike Winger, and we're about to talk about some really important issues. One of the popular attacks on Christians is that we have, quote, blind faith or faith without any evidence or reason. And I'm excited to show you biblically that this is not true. I'm also going to give you some tips on keys on how to understand prophecy in the Bible and so much more as we just continue digging into the gold mine of God's Word in our verse-by-verse study of First Peter. Okay, so if you guys had opened your Bibles up to First Peter chapter 1, we're going to be digging in. Um, but we're going to start by just reading what we've gone through already because that's going to set up our minds and our hearts for what comes next. So First Peter chapter 1, and it says here in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that is where we're picking up in verse 8 which says, whom having not seen, you love. You love. Verse 9 kind of ends with, we're receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I want to remind us just real quick that the end of our faith is not financial prosperity. The end or the purpose, the conclusion of it all is not a health and wealth gospel. It is not prosperity preaching. I think prosperity preachers... It's not that they're in trouble for selling too much as far as the gospel is concerned. They're in trouble for selling too little. I mean, when you offer somebody a Jesus gospel that is about financial prosperity and physical well-being in this earth, in this life, you make the same mistake that so many people made when they met Jesus. When the woman at the well says, oh, give me that water so I may no longer have to come to this well to drink. And he's like, no, it's the water for eternal life. I'm talking about me. He, he multiplies the bread and they go, give us this bread always, Jesus. So we don't have to work or anything. We just get free food from you all the time. And he goes, no, you need the bread, the food. Work the works for eternal life. Oh, what is that work? He goes, believe on the one whom he sent, who the Father sent, you know, in John 6. And so we've got this, this constant drumbeat in the scriptures of this idea that it is bigger than just physical health or well-being and so the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls and that is why we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory that that rejoicing full of glory inexpressible you might as you read it be like am i rejoicing that much am i rejoicing that much and 
maybe this is an American thing, you know, something we do here in America that, where we tend to consult our emotions to find out the truth of, of an issue. Do you know what I mean? It's like, are you saved? Oh, let me, I don't know. Let me check my heart. Am I saved heart? Yeah, today I'm feeling pretty good. So yeah, you're saved. Okay, I'm, I am. I'm, I know the Lord. And then later on, a week later, am I saved? Let me, let me consult with my heart again. Am I saved? No, I'm not feeling very good. You know, I kind of woke up on the wrong side of the bed and didn't get any breakfast and I got a headache and, and, um, and, and you, you sinned. So you're, you're not saved. Oh, I guess I'm not saved. Instead of consulting the cross, like, am I saved? You know, is my faith in the in, in the cross? Is my faith in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross? Um, well, in the same sense, our rejoicing, we can be checking our hearts to see if we rejoice enough, instead of checking our faith to find our rejoicing. And there's a bit of a difference there. I think it is simply natural. It's not a mystical rejoicing. It's not a a sort of a. a confusing, I wonder where that comes from kind of joy. It's just the joy of someone that's on their way to their eternal glorious inheritance. Sometimes when I'm having a really bad day, I'm down and I just say, Lord, I thank you that I'm saved and that I'm going to spend eternity with you in heaven. And all of a sudden my bad day doesn't seem so bad. There's just a simple fact that we can rejoice at any time in any circumstance because of our salvation, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. But it, it has this uh, statement in verse 8, whom having not seen you love. And I want to talk about this for a moment for a couple reasons. First, it's the idea of love, um, that we love Jesus. You know, I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And this idea that Christianity is all about love is a, sort of a unique idea. In Judaism and then in Christianity, which is what Judaism spawned or birthed was Christianity, there is this idea that God is love. That God is all loving. And this is a uniquely biblical idea. I don't know if you know this or not. Some people say, why do you believe in God and and don't believe in like Zeus and Thor and and all these various other characters? And And they compare as though there's some sort of comparison between the God of all creation, an uncreated, eternal, all powerful being, Versus like Thor, who's basically a superhero. And the god, see, the, the gods of Greek mythology and Roman religions were these basically human characters with extra human powers. They, they, they were not eternal. They were created or birthed by some other being. And they, were, they had limits to their abilities. They were basically just very powerful beings. But they were nothing like God, the I Am, the Almighty. Nothing like that at all. And um, they were mischievous, they were untrustworthy, and they were unpredictable, and most certainly they were not all loving. This is a, a biblical idea that God is all loving. Then you've got the Hindu beliefs, and in Hindu beliefs you have literally millions, literally millions of identified gods within Hinduism, because Hinduism is basically an amalgam of a bunch of different religions that were all cropped up in the same region, and then they just sort of tried to like bring them all together under one basic philosophy of Hinduism. And it's, it's, it's a very self-contradictory religion, but then they preach, hey, it's beyond your intellect, so, you know, it's okay if it's self-contradictory. It's not. You just, you rely on reason too much is kind of what they'll say. Well, the, the highest being in this Hindu system is Brahman, right? And this Brahman, I'm not talking about cow, uh, cattle or anything like that. This is, that's a title, Brahman. Brahman is the Hindu, um, you might call it the Hindu version of God, but that would be a radical misrepresentation. 
Uh, some people think, oh, Brahman and God, we have the same idea of God. It's really very different. You see, Brahman is a non-personal, I, I can't even say person. It's, it's not a person. Brahman's not a he. Brahman's not a she. Brahman is just sort of the source of everything. Brahman doesn't intentionally create anything. Everything just sort of like spills out of Brahman without Brahman even maybe even knowing about it. Who knows? And is there, there's no communication with Brahman. There's no relationship possible with Brahman. And they'll say Brahman is the source of love, but only probably in the sense in which Brahman is the source of everything. You know, it's just like the source of like chairs and the source of trees and the source of like, you know, mosquitoes and cockroaches and love. You know, it's just kind of like everything sort of emanates out from Brahman. But you cannot have a relationship because Brahman's an impersonal it, you know, and Brahman even becomes a pantheism as well. It's it's hard to define because again, it defies entire rationality because there's a lot of contradictory concepts within Hindu uh, beliefs. But but it's definitely this idea of God being a god of love is not does not sp- spin out from that. In Islam, you might think because there's a biblical basis of Islam, I should say a, a, a biblical launch pad. Now, Islam has launched really far away from the Bible, <laughs> but used the monotheistic beginning of the Bible to begin Islam and then sort of branch off from there. You might say, well, Islam has a God of love, right? Don't Muslims worship the same God that Christians worship as as some people have declared erroneously? And actually, as you read the Quran, and I have taken occasion to do this, and um, it's like a lot of false religious texts, it's just really boring. But if you do take your time to read the Quran, you'll see several things. One thing in there, you'll see there's contradictions, of course, you'll see that. But the description of God as a God of love is a little more peculiar than it is in Christian theology. Christian theology, God loves, man. God loves the sinner. Not in Islam. God has no love for the sinner. He hates the sinner, period, at all, that's it. God loves those who are worth his love. God will be, according to the Quran, God will will be merciful to you. If you earn it, which of course is not mercy <laughs> at all. God loves the righteous and he hates the sinner. And there's a constant drumbeat through the Quran of God hating the wicked. I hate the wicked. I hate the wicked. I hate the wicked. Period. End of story. And um, this is this is a, a, an, an earned love. If you get if you get Allah's love, it is earned. But it's a very different thing than what we find in the scripture. In Christianity, in fact, let me start back in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34. And you're welcome to turn there. Exodus 34. Moses is encountering God on Mount Sinai. And he is God is revealing himself in a very vivid way to the people of Israel. So he's going to teach the people of Israel a lot about him during this time. Moses becomes a mediator and an example of our ultimate mediator, Jesus. And, um, and he brings truth from God to the people. Well, Moses, he prays that God would show Moses God's glory. And God responds, and he says, oh, you can't really fully see me. He descends in a cloud. Of course, the cloud is to obscure him, not the cloud isn't him. And then in Exodus 34, uh, verse 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now, now in your Bible there, you see how the Lord is spelled a little differently than normal. The capitals, L-O-R-D, right? That's because that's actually Yahweh. That is the name that the, we call the tetragrammatron. Tetragrammatron. That's a hard word to say. And it, it's the four Hebrew letters um, that spell out God's name. Now, we're not sure what vowels go with those letters because it's been lost to history. It's just not known. 
Um, so may have been pronounced Yahweh. Definitely was not pronounced Jehovah. There's no J sound, actually, in Hebrew. So we're pretty sure that they didn't make a sound they don't have. But, um, but maybe Yahweh. So the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And there you have this God of love, right? But it's possible to then be unbalanced and think God's love is so much that he always forgives everybody no matter what. And, you know, you have this universalist view that we all just go to heaven. And so he says he's a God who forgives, but then he goes on, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then he goes on describing mercy to even greater numbers of generations. But the idea here is that God is loving and merciful, but he'll still bring judgment. Well, well where's the... Where's the tipping point between those? Well, that's Jesus. I mean, he's the tipping point between will you get God's love and mercy or will you just get his judgment? But God is a God of love. And as he introduces his name to uh, Moses to bring to the people of Israel, he describes himself in these incredibly generous and gracious and merciful, loving terms. Then in Romans 5.8, we have one of my favorite scriptures, Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, the love of God. God's love is a biblical view and that, the reason why I go into this when I say whom having not seen you love in uh, 1 Peter here is because that's why we love him. 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. This is the reason why we love him. Christians are people of love because their God is a God of love. Just as I could say, Many Muslims are people of war because that's the God they worship. I mean, it's, you know, you become an expression of, of who you think, what you think of God is what you begin to imitate in your life. And as we, we see from the scripture that God is, is a loving and gracious and merciful God. So we love him. We love him because he first loved us. Um, even though we have not seen him. So back to First Peter, if you would. I have not seen Jesus, but I do love him. And our world, they're in love with love. They love love with a love of love that is full of love. And they sing songs like, all we need is love. And they say things like, I love everyone. I've heard a lot of people say this before. Maybe you've said it. I love everyone. And I'm just like, you don't know everyone. (laughs) You can't possibly love everyone. Do you love, I don't know, your siblings? Do you love your kids? Do you love your parents? How about your coworkers? How about that guy that always gives you the cold shoulder? How about the guy that cuts you off in traffic? Do you love them too? You know, do you love the people who wrong you and hurt you? Because in that, the love of God is manifested. So the world's all about love though. But the problem with the world's version of love is that it tends to be self-love and it tends to be love for man. Love for humans to the exclusion of loving God. Yet the greatest commandment is to love God. God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So whom having not seen, you love. I love Jesus. I love him first. I love him last. I love him in between. I love Christ as the ultimate and as my highest good, the highest good of my life is not even the good I do for my fellow man, but it is the love I give to my Savior. That's the highest good a Christian can do. There was a, uh, an atheist who passed away not long ago. His name is Christopher Hitchens. And he went around debating 
Christian theists all over the place. He would debate anybody. You know, he would debate great philosophers, or he would debate just random guys from some pulpit in some church. You know, he just debated anybody, and he. Um, he, one of his constant mantras that he would do in these debates, the debate on whether God exists or not, right? Or he'd have a, he wrote a, I think it was him that wrote a book called God is Not Great. I think that was Christopher Hitchens. And um, one of these atheists, there's, there's certain uh, atheists that are the modern uh, sort of acidic, <laughs> um, sarcastic attackers of theism. And uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, these are some of those names. But Christopher Hitchens, in his debates, he would almost always bring up this one statement. He'd say to the, to the theist next to him, name for me one moral act that a Christian can do that an atheist cannot. And then they would just kind of get stumped, you know, because it's just kind of a strange question. You're like, I haven't really been thinking about that recently, you know, so I'm not really sure if I'm ready to answer that question. Finally, one pastor chimed in and said, tithe. <laughs> That's... That's funny. A pastor would think of that. Um, uh, yeah, I suppose. Um, but there's there's a moral act that is much more important than that, that an atheist is simply incapable of doing. Loving God. This is the greatest commandment, that you love God. And you fail this, you fail the greatest, most important thing of all life. It is love. It is all about love. But it is love towards God, not love towards man. So he says, whom having not seen... You love. If, so Peter was writing to people who hadn't really seen Jesus, who hadn't walked with him and been with him during his ministry on earth. They heard and received the gospel later through the preaching of the disciples. And a lot of people take this passage to reinforce sometimes a very bad idea that I, I want to take a moment to maybe dispute, <laughs> if you'll bear with me. Um, they think that because we haven't seen Jesus, it means we haven't seen any evidence of Jesus. Because I haven't seen the Savior, I haven't seen any evidence to support belief in him whatsoever. Some people think that faith in Christ means believing in Jesus for no reason whatsoever. And they think faith equals the absence of any evidence or any reasons for faith. And this is not a biblical idea. And so if that's, if that's you in the room, just give me a moment to think about this. Even if you have no reason other than the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's a reason, is it not? You are not believing for no reason. You're believing for an extremely powerful reason. God has spoke to you about this issue. Not only that, those who say that there's faith equals belief for no reason, their favorite disciple to use to reinforce this is, of course, Thomas. So let's like turn with me to John chapter 20 and let's look at the story of Thomas because it turns out that this actually reinforces why we should believe for good reasons, not for no reason at all. So in John 20, verse 19, it says, oh, I'll just wait a moment longer. I hear those pages turning. I want to respect those who are willing to actually turn to the passage. John twenty nineteen it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, this is after the death and resurrection of Christ, but they haven't seen him yet, not as a group, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, the evidence of his crucifixion, meaning that the wounds were still there. 
um, healed, it seems, uh, but, but the scars were there. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now there's a lot in this passage, obviously, but I want to focus on Thomas's experience here. He wasn't with them. And so the other disciples, verse 25... Therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he rejects their testimony. And after eight days, his, uh, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. He's there this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. He is like literally reduplicating the moment for Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him so profoundly, my Lord and my God. And yeah, he's calling Jesus God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the initial disciples believed because they saw Jesus. Thomas was simply not there for that wonderful experience of seeing Jesus. And so we call him Doubting Thomas. But in a sense, he only doubted the same amount the rest of them did, right? Because they believed when they saw, and they disbelieved when the women came saying, hey, we saw Jesus, and they didn't believe them either, right? So he's just the same as the rest of them. He just didn't happen to be there for that experience. So he gets kind of an unfair treatment sometimes of doubting Thomas, you know, that kind of thing. But um, what he actually doubted, think about this though, what he doubted is the same thing the disciples doubted when they failed to believe the witness of of the testimony of the women. They doubted the miracles they saw Jesus perform, the Old Testament teachings and prophecies they saw Jesus fulfill, the testimony of eyewitness accounts that Jesus had risen. This is what they doubted. They didn't just doubt believing for no reason. Catch that. They had reasons. This testimony of these eyewitnesses that Jesus, he he implies Thomas should have received their testimony. That testimony is still today one of the greatest evidences we have for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is the testimony of those who said we were his eyewitnesses and then they suffered painful deaths because of that belief. Where at any moment they could have recanted and turned some other way. There is no better explanation for what they did than that they actually saw Jesus alive from the dead. I think that we need to realize that what Jesus is saying, blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen me, is those, another way to put it is blessed are those who believe based on the testimony, the witnesses and the word and the gospel that is being preached. And so, whom having not seen I love doesn't mean I have no reasons to believe in Jesus. That's all I'm saying. And... Um, I think when you find somebody who says, I will not believe unless dot, dot, dot. You know, I've asked these people, like, what would it take for you to put your faith and trust in Christ? What would it take for you to believe? And sometimes you find a genuinely sincere person. And, um, but, but I've never heard a good answer to the question, what would it take for you to believe? I like to ask sometimes skeptics, let's suppose God had written a book. Let's suppose God penned a book or, you know, had humans pin it as we believe with the Bible. What sort of evidence could you find in the Bible 
that would confirm that it had a supernatural source. And the atheist says, or usually it's an atheist who's, who I've discussed this with, um, says to me, I don't know. And I'm like, well, how can you deny when you haven't even considered what to look for? You haven't even thought about what kind of evidence you look for. And of course, I think the best answer there is prophecy. I mean, prophecy is not, cannot find its origin in the minds of man. Just look at all these psychic agencies that have gone out of business. <laughs> Ironically. Um, so sometimes you find a sincere person, but you often find someone who's ignored the evidence they've already received, or maybe they've just totally misunderstood Christianity to start with. And so when they begin attacking what they understand of Christianity, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not what we believe in the first place. Like, that's not even what we believe. The, uh, the Romans did this to the Christians. They had all these confusions. They called Christians atheists <laughs> at the time because they didn't believe in any of the Roman gods and that Roman, Romans were pluralists. They didn't think Christians believed in no gods of any kind. They just said, you're rejecting all these gods, you know, so you know, you're, you're atheists or something. There was a lot of confusion. They thought they were cannibals uh, because of uh, the teaching of Jesus about uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in John chapter 6 or because of communion, uh, which of course was also misunderstanding. So we find that many people today are still misunderstanding Christianity, but if they'll stop and think about it, then they'll see the evidence if they want it, if they'll look for it, if they'll examine it and think about it carefully. And when, when someone says to me, and, and supposedly they've studied religion, and they go, what's the difference between you and all the other religions? And then I'm like, have you really not looked into this? The fact that you think there's no difference between Christianity and other religions says to me that you haven't really thought about it. I almost think you don't want it to be true. I almost feel like you're happy if it's not true because it justifies your life. But that is no way to, to learn truth. So verse, um, verse 10 here, speaking of evidence, as we move into verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, we've got to really carefully read this. There's a lot of passages in the scripture that you can't casually read and get. You've got to give it thought. So, for instance, let's, let's read it again and just give it a little bit of thought. The subject is prophecy. Of this salvation, of, of the whole work of Christ and what he's done, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So, the salvation that comes from Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. The, the prophets laid it out there ahead of time. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. They're searching for two things. They want to know not only that there is a salvation coming, but they're not sure what it is exactly. They don't know the details. And they're searching for when it's going to happen, what manner of time. So those prophets didn't really know all that stuff. This is a really um, interesting concept. So this verse is, these, these verses, verses 10 and 11, are teaching us several things. In fact, I'm going to give you five things that we learn from these two verses. And there's more, but I'll give, you, I'll give you five. First off, it was the spirit of Christ by which the prophets spoke. They got their information from the spirit of Messiah, of Christ, of Jesus. And you might say, but Second Peter... Not a different Peter, right? Same guy, <laughs> a different letter. He writes in chapter 1, verse 21, that it was that the prophets wrote from the Holy Spirit. So wait, is it the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ? And the answer is yes. 
And this is another example of how the Bible sort of forces you into the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons in one entity. You know, you've got the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but there's only one God. And we're sort of forced into this idea because the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ are mingled in their descriptions of each other um, because they're the same. Number two, another lesson, another thing you learn from this, prophecy is about Christ. It was not only from the Spirit of Christ that they spoke, but it was about Christ that they spoke. Prophecy is about Jesus. The main theme of the Bible can be summarized in a five-letter word, J-E-S-U-S. It is about Jesus. Jesus said this in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. I love looking for Jesus through the Old Testament in pictures and symbols and all these different ways. Using the New Testament, how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament as your map of going, oh, that's how I find these passages, you know. And then going into it, um, it's been a really fun exercise to do. When we, when we had the first school ministry class, I'll do it again at some point, where we did Jesus in the Old Testament. We did a few of the books of the Bible just going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Just all these different passages that relate to Christ, starting from literally page one in Genesis. Um, just amazing, awesome stuff. So the third thing we learn is... Um, that the prophecy, although it was accurate, although it was about Christ, although it was from God, it was not totally clear. The prophecy was not totally clear. And I want you to think about this, this concept. The prophets back in the day, in Isaiah's time, he wrote a ton about Jesus. We call him the Messianic prophet because there's so much about Messiah in his writings. But he did not necessarily fully understand the implications of what he wrote. Because his prophecy didn't come from him. He did not fully understand it. It's, it's kind of like, imagine if you have somebody who is, um, who is nearsighted. And you're, you're, you're nearsighted. And you're, you get injured. You're riding your bicycle down the street. And you, you run into a school bus. And you fall on the ground. And you're laying there. And you're like, oh, I'm hurt. you know. And you're, just, you're in pain. right? And you look off into the distance. And you see somebody coming. And you're like, okay, I think they're coming to help me. And you notice that this person who's coming to you, they have a, um, they're, they're, they have a brown, or excuse me, what, what would the color would the jacket be? Let's say, I think it's brown, green. Oh goodness, I forget. But you see their jeans or their pants are brown, and you see a, a glimmer of, of shining, you know, light coming from their, their chest pocket, you know, and you see their shirt, whatever, and you're like, oh, oh, someone's, all I know is they're coming to help me. There's just someone's coming to help me. You know, I know that. I know someone's coming. I know they're going to help me. But as they get closer, your nearsightedness kicks in <laughs> and you begin to actually see them clearly. And you see that the, the brown was the, co- was, the, was the color of the pants with a little stripe on the side. And the, ba- the badge is what you were seeing glinting in the light. And you go, oh, it was, it was one of the deputies coming to help me out. Oh, that's good. That's good. I, that explains what the things were that I saw earlier. So from a distance, I look at prophecy in the Old Testament. If I'm way back there and I see from a distance the Messiah, I see certain elements about him, but they don't come into full focus until I see them really fulfilled in the New Testament. And then I go, ah, that's what I saw back there. That's what I saw. I mean, it's unmistakable. You know, you know this is him, but it goes from being unclear to clear. And this um, is a really important concept. We understand it. This is number four. We understand prophecy of the Old Testament better now than the people did when it was written. Not because we're clever. 
It's simply because we've got the cheat sheet. It's already been fulfilled. Matthew 13, 17, Jesus said this, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So there's the fulfillment of these things, and now it's like click, 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 click. It just makes sense. And the fifth thing we learn in this, these two verses is that prophecies about Christ can fit into two categories. And this is really neat. I like this a lot. It can fit into two categories. What were they prophesying? They were testifying in verse 11 beforehand, one, the sufferings of Christ, and two, the glories that would follow. These are the two categories of prophecy about Jesus, his first coming, the sufferings, and his second coming, the glories that would follow. This is one of the major keys we have to unlocking the Old Testament prophecy that they did not have back then because they didn't see it. They saw um, that, that the Messiah was supposed to suffer. They saw the Messiah was supposed to reign and they, they were confused by this. Some rabbis even thought maybe there's two Messiahs, one that suffers and dies and one that comes and reigns. See, they were confused by the idea of a first and second coming. But now that we've seen the first coming, those prophecies have been fulfilled. We now look forward to the second coming. Well, we certainly narrow down you know what's going to happen next because we've got so much fulfilled already. Now in verse 12 here, he says, To them it was revealed, to those prophets, that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. I love this, this sense that even angels like want to know what is Jesus going to do? What's going to happen? It was a mystery to those in heaven, the details. They just knew what they knew, but no more, you know. Daniel's a really good example of this. Um, in Daniel, we have uh, sort of the, the book of Daniel's kind of in a couple different sections. It's a little bit mixed, you might think, but there's sort of the historical type experiences of Daniel and his comrades. And then we have visions. And there's a section of visions that Daniel goes through, then a little more story, then there's more visions. Amazing prophecies in the book of Daniel. But Daniel sees some visions that totally confuse him. And like he goes fasting for a time and he's like, I was like, I don't understand this Lord. And it really bothered him. He lost sleep over it and he's seeking the Lord and praying and really neat stuff that happens there. But in Daniel 12 verses 8 and 9, after having a vision and then having it explained, sort of, Here's what he's told, uh, or what he says. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Like, I don't get it. What's the point of all the stuff that he's seen? You know, these beasts and this, all this stuff. Prophecy of a bunch of future things. Some of it's past, some of it's still future. And verse 9, the angel says, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, in theology class, they often teach that you cannot pretend or suggest or have an idea that the Bible text means anything other than what the original author intended it to mean. And I agree if by original author you mean God. But if by original author you mean Daniel or, or whoever else wrote it, no. Here's an example where Daniel's like, I don't really know what to do. And he's just write it down. It's for the end. It'll, it'll make sense later to other people, not you. Just write it down. Okay, you know, I'll just write it down. It's like, in a sense, they were cooking food someone else was going to eat. You know, that's, that's the idea. These prophets were writing it down for us in, in a future time. And, that's, and we're, we live in exciting times. You know, that these, there's a mystery has been revealed. Um, that's pretty exciting. God's the author. And, and so uh, what I would like to do right now, if you guys are down, 
is I'd like to survey some of these um, some of these passages where we see the um, uh, the prophecies about Christ. So if you would with me, uh, turn to Isaiah fifty three verses seven and eight. So we're going to look at some of these prophecies of Christ specifically because you got to narrow it down. There's so much prophecy about Jesus. I'm just going to look at some of the prophecies about surrounding his death, surrounding the death of, of, the, of the Christ, of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, it says here, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So he offered no defense. We see Christ offering no defense in his criminal trial. Um, he was taken from prison and from judgment. So the idea of being from prison and judgment, well, he was both imprisoned and he was brought before the judgment seat, both the Jewish courts and the Roman courts. So we see this Old Testament prophecy here referring to Christ, the Messiah, uh, being treated as a criminal, being brought before court cases, being silent in, in the things he's done. Um, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. To be cut off from the land of the living would be to be killed. So he'll be killed. Messiah will be killed. Um, go to verse 12 in Isaiah 53. And we'll see, he won't just die. He'll die alongside criminals. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So he's bearing, he's innocent, but yet he's numbered with the transgressors. He's put alongside the wicked. And sure enough, he was put alongside the wicked. Um, he was, in verse 9, he was with the rich at his death. Now we, we have the story in the New Testament of Joseph of Arimathea coming and taking Jesus and bringing him into his own tomb, his own family tomb that had been hewn recently. And here we have, um, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It's just interesting that in critical historians, in their little world, you know, that they live in, whatever that is, uh, they think that the story of Joseph of Arimathea, even secular historians, that this particular part of the resurrection account is like extremely likely to be true. Like they put like a huge stamp of approval on it, even the secular Um, unsaved historians. And the reason why is because it's embarrassing for the disciples to account how they walked away from Jesus and this unknown guy, Joseph, and then Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came and got the body of Jesus and put it in the tomb. That's one of the reasons why. They go, this is just embarrassing for them. Uh, One of the criterion for suggesting that something's really historically true is that it's embarrassing to the person writing it. They're like, they'd have no motive <laughs> to write it down. So that's one of the uh, reasons why they say, well, this is really likely. So here we have that, and we have the idea in the scripture prophesied beforehand. Beforehand. Uh, now turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 23 is known as the shepherd's psalm. Well, Psalm 22 is kind of a shepherd's psalm too because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Psalm 22 is the prophetic passage about the cross in particular. Jesus himself quoted this psalm on the cross. Verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted this on the cross. He wasn't just declaring God's forsaken me and I don't know why. He was quoting the first verse of a psalm to bring it to the, to the minds of those that were listening. This is how a rabbi would bring to mind a passage. They would say, in the beginning, God, and then you'd, 
you just immediately load Genesis 1 into your mind, you know, if you were this rabbi's disciple. And so here Psalm 22 would come to their minds. Well, Psalm 22, verse 12 and 13, it talks about how Jesus' crucifixion would be public, not private, a public death. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So there's many there are bulls of Bashan. It was a typical, especially in Jewish uh, writings, and even even nowadays in Israel, um, they call people animals. That's like, especially if they're really mad at you. You know, if, if someone were to call you a, a dog or a, a pig or something, that's considered like those are fighting words. You know, in America, we've actually made up new words to cuss at people. Now in Israel, if you, were, you really want to get mad and cuss at someone, you use English because <laughs> you don't have those words in Israel, in uh, Hebrew, but. But the bulls of Bashan, it's, it's talking about individuals. You know, they call them bulls of Bashan because they're like a, a mob of people, you know. And then also in verses 16 and 17, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. <clears throat> I'll get back to the pierced part. But just the idea that he's got a whole group of people around him at his crucifixion. If Jesus was quietly, privately assassinated, then this, of course, would have failed. Prophecy would have failed here. Um, verse 15, we read that he's dehydrated. Look at these words. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, like a, like a broken piece of pottery, and clay is about as dry as it gets, right? And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So he's dehydrated. His tongue's sticking to his mouth. He doesn't have a drug problem. He's dehydrated. That's what it is. Some people only know that symptom from the wrong source you need to stop if that's you but um all right so then we have uh verse 14 at his death um i'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it has melted within me so his bones are out of joint so this death involves the bones being out of joint psalm 34 i'll just quote this real quick for you psalm 34 20 says that none of his bones will be broken his bones will not be broken specifically. Uh, then in verse 16, we, we have at the end of that verse, they pierced my hands and my feet. So we have bones out of joint, dehydration, yet his bones are not broken. It's a public execution. He dies alongside other criminals. You've got all these elements to the crucifixion of Christ prophesied ahead of time. And there he is on the cross quoting this chapter. I just would love to see like the crowd when he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And then someone like plays that psalm in their mind and it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> could you imagine? Just, just amazed. Um, what's really interesting is it just gets into more detail. Um, also, Zechariah 12.10 talks about his hands and feet being pierced. The, but the specific things they'd say to Jesus while he was on the cross, verse 8, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is what they said to Jesus while he was on the cross. Leave him alone. Let's see if God takes him down from the cross. This is exactly what they told him. In verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. They're rolling dice for his clothes. We see them do this for Jesus' clothing during the crucifixion. This is absolutely amazing. He was fed vinegar in Psalm 69.21. It speaks of that they, they gave me vinegar, gall for my drink, and this is what they fed Jesus on the cross. Um, he was betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41, verse 9. The price of the betrayal 
specifically is given um, in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. If you ever want to remember that, just think Zechariah 11, 12, 13. <laughs> it's right there. And it talks about how Judas um, would betray Christ for this exact amount of money and what the money would be used for. Let's just turn there real quick. These are verses I, I recommend underlying, underlining and being able to show to friends. Um, these passages are uh, clearly and provably written before the crucifixion. They're not added by, you know, kooky Christians later on trying to sneak Jesus into the Old Testament. No, it was always there. So here we have Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. It says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. This is what they gave to Judas. And the Lord said to me, Now listen to the wording. It's so peculiar. Throw it to the potter. The money. Throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them, not to the potter, into the house of the Lord for the potter. How peculiar. And yet Judas, what did he do with the money? He was grieved after he saw Christ was condemned to death. He went, which he knew that was supposed to happen, but you know, he's, he's heartbroken over it. He's grieved. He's sorrowful. Maybe he's under attack of the enemy. Maybe he's just feeling condemned because of what he's done. Anyhow, he goes back to the, to the priests and he's like, hey, take this money back. And they're like, we don't want that money. It's blood money. So he throws it down in the house of the Lord. And what do they do? They take it and they buy the potter's field with the money. Because they're like, we ha- they basically had to launder the money, so to speak. They're like, it's blood money. We can't just put it in the treasury. So they went and bought a field and like kind of donated it to whenever a stranger dies in Israel, you can bury him in this field, which coincidentally is where Judas hung himself and he ends up being buried in the same place. Um, so absolutely uh, amazing, astounding. Um, Psalm 22 was written, get this, a thousand years before Jesus was walking the earth. A thousand years. It was written hundreds of years before crucifixion had been invented. And it wasn't, that's why the word crucify is not in there, because the word didn't exist. There, nobody had been crucified at that point in time. It was invented, then later on it was perfected by the Romans, and then uh, Jesus himself was crucified. But the description is of crucifixion. The bones out of joint, which just happens on the cross when your arms get pulled out by the uh, nails. And... Um, and your lungs expand and your dehydration after the flogging and all that. All of these, the piercing of the hands and feet, uh, just absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Some, some Jewish people said, maybe you guys added that. Maybe you Christians added that to the, to the Bible after um, Jesus died and rose again. But then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 19, um, oh gosh, what was the year? Six, well, I could make it up because you probably don't remember either. <laughs> 60, I don't remember the exact year. But they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the, um, they found copies of, like, Isaiah 53, for instance, from before Christ was born. It was over about 150, 180 years before Jesus was born, this copy. And so it had this, you know, the same messianic passage. So just absolutely amazing. The prophecies of, of Jesus, of his, of his death, and of his, not only his death, his resurrection as well. Isaiah 53, verses 10, and, 10 through 12 talk about the resurrection. And... Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11 also talk about the resurrection of Christ. And then the glory that's to come, those left unfulfilled passages from the Old Testament, so many of them about the second coming of Christ. And now they make sense. And now it clicks. Now, now that our salvation is nearer you know, than when we first believed, we look and we see more clearly who it is that's been coming this whole time and what his coming's all about. 
Now, I just wanted to give you a little survey of some prophecies. If I had like a, a, a Jewish friend, I would totally take them through those passages and, and have them read them. In fact, I would just let him read Isaiah 53, let him read Psalm 22, and then ask him what he thought about it. Um, or she, you know, because it is so impressive. Isaiah 53 is actually not read in the, in the, in the yearly synagogue readings. They have, they have specific scriptures they read. They skip Isaiah 53. That's pretty unfortunate. Now, that's not because individual Jews are like, we all don't like Isaiah. No, they probably aren't even aware, most of them. Um, they, but I think that they realize that the, the, the missionaries to Jewish, in fact, Jews for Jesus, this group of Jews who are Messianic, who follow Christ, they go out and they share Isaiah 53. And I think they've realized how effective it is in bringing Jews to the Savior. And so those who are resisting that have said, well, we don't want, you know, we just want to kind of tuck that away and hide it. Um, uh, oddly enough, another passage, Daniel 9, which talks about when Christ would come, the, uh, the Jewish leaders have said that you're, a curse is on you if you try to calculate that passage to figure out when the time is going to come. Because they realize that it calculates to, to Jesus' time. And so it, there's just some people inside of Judaism, some, not all, that are fighting against Messiah. And they're just fighting against him. And um, needlessly, because he came to save them. So before we do anything else, I just want to stop and talk for a second about the implications of prophecy. Because Peter's totally into prophecy. In fact, all of the Old Testament writers are into pro- I mean, New Testament writers are totally into fulfilled prophecy. They just love it. I mean, read Hebrews. Read Matthew. I mean, how many Old Testament quotes are in here? That it may be fulfilled, that it may be fulfilled. Jesus says, I came to fulfill it all. You know, they're just totally into prophecy. The reason why is because if prophecy is really in the Bible, it implies a certain group of facts. These things must be true if that's really in there. One of them is this. There's a God. There's a God. It's the most reasonable explanation. If prophecy is legitimately true. If these things really were written beforehand and really came to pass afterwards, and this is something humans are incapable of doing, then it's a supernatural source. Yet that same source is telling us, yes, it's me, God. I have a really good reason to believe in God. Now, I don't think I need prophecy to prove God. I think just creation itself declares the glory of God. But I like that there's more evidence than I need. (laughs) This doesn't bother me at all. The second thing it shows... Not just that there's a God, but that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, if the prophecy is fulfilled in Christ, then he really is who he says he is. It, it confirms who he is. Number three, here's something that really is encouraging me personally. It shows that God has a plan. And, I mean, have you ever read history? Like old history. Weird, wacky empires doing crazy, horrible things to each other. That's history right there, right? That's modern history, even. But yet, in all of that, weaving through it is God's perfect plan to bring a Savior to this world, to die on the cross for the sin of people, to spread the gospel throughout the globe, bringing people to Christ to give them an eternal hope and eternal glory. God has a plan, and his plan is taking place, and I don't have to panic or worry or or basically feel like it's, it's out of control. You know, like the reins have been released, and the horses are just running, and who knows where it's going. God will do what he wants and eventually, I'll see it all pan out. I'll see it all pan out. But he has a plan, and I find that very encouraging. Because some prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. And those prophecies, there's a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> that's a lot of really neat stuff. Have you read the end of Revelation? Have you read chapters 21 and 22? I'm looking forward to it. And number, number four, the fourth thing, the implication of prophecy, 
is that if the suffering prophecies came to pass, then the glory prophecies will come to pass. If Christ came, then he'll come again. If he really was here, then he'll really come back. And all this is leading us to verse 13 in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, right? So that there were these prophecies and that there's this salvation and this inheritance we have in Christ. And it leads us to verse 13, which says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. This is an interesting concept. And I think to understand it, I just want to read what Jesus said in Luke 12. And I'll give you a moment to turn there if you like. Luke 12, verse 22. We're just going to read a big chunk of what Jesus said here. Because to understand, gird up the loins of your mind, this might sound to you like, what is it talking about? Like, I don't know. Right, Girding up is preparing for work or preparing for travel. But the loins of my mind, um, what does that mean? Well, let's look at it here in Luke 12. Verse 22, it says, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, <clears throat> what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a cubit to his stature? If then... If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I think this puts it in context. He gives him a parable about don't obsess about the things everybody else worries about, the Gentile or the worldly worries. Right? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I gonna... It's just that's just this constant concerns of the daily things of life. He's like, God, I'll take care of you. I want you to obsess about the coming kingdom. Store up treasures in heaven. And as he says, to have our waists girded, ready to go. Like we're sitting down to eat but we're like ready to jump out and run out the door and take off. That's the idea. So girding up the loins of our mind is this. 
to be so serious about my hope that I have in Christ that I see this world useful only as much as it's useful for the eternal kingdom of God. Think about that. I, I see this world as being useful in as much as it's useful for God's eternal kingdom. I see that everything that happens here is only so valuable in that it relates to eternity. That my opportunities, my friendships, my interactions, all this stuff, I don't pile up a bunch of things that will just burn on that day. But I want to store up treasures in heaven. To gird up the loins of my mind, be sober, and rest my hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus. So where is your hope right now? And this can be checked when you just lose things in life painfully. You find out where your hope was. When you lose your health, you find out where your hope was, if it was in your health or in something else. Because if you lose that, but your hope is still intact, then you know that that wasn't your hope. Life can go upside down and sideways and crooked and all kinds of weird things that happen that don't make any sense and you can't make sense of them. And someone tries to come alongside and be like, oh, well, I think da, 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 God's doing this. And they're just, they're just making stuff up. They don't know what God's doing. You don't know what God, I don't know what God's doing. But I can gird up my mind for the eternal journey and I can set my hope upon Christ and go, whether or not I get the things I hope for in this life, my hope isn't for this life. That's the point. It's just not about this life. It's about our eternal kingdom. And if we can get this, if we can be people that are, are pilgrims, remember this is what First Peter is about, is the pilgrim's handbook. I'm a pilgrim passing through. For some reason, this is easier to remember when you're like 18 and you have no money and you don't have any plans and you don't know what's happening next year anyways. But the older you get, the more, you, I don't know, you start to just like get more comfortable, you know, with life. And with the routine and with this and that. And this is where persecution wakes the church up. Because it basically makes you really uncomfortable. So you start grabbing onto the hope you have for, for, for our future. But, um, but may we be people who don't need suffering to cause us to place our hope in eternity and in heaven. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that stirs up in us an eternal hope and a sense in which we look at our lives in contrast of eternity. It just matters what lasts forever. We pray, Lord, in light of the prophecies of Christ, in light of our hope in Christ, in light of our love for him who loved us first. Help us to gird up as though we're on a journey because we are and to live this life daily, ultimately for your kingdom. To see every relationship as an opportunity to glorify Christ, to love you in that way. To see our employment as a way to show love for God at this place. And to see even our homes and our, our, our places of living, to see that as just a temporary dwelling place. Help us to have spiritual priorities, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Mike Winger, and next time on Bible Thinker, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter and keep digging into this gold mine that is God's Word. Now, if you find this particular ministry to be a blessing to you, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to go ahead and give it a rating on whatever pod-catching you know, software you're using, whether it be iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. Uh, that 
rating actually goes a long way towards causing this content to be promoted so that other people can be blessed by it as well. Thanks for partnering with me. Until next time, don't forget to check the context. Thank you.